Happy Friday to you. It is suddenly September. That's not true. It's not suddenly September. I mean that we are three weeks into September and that feels fast. Have you had your pumpkin spice flavored things yet? At the time of this recording, it was still so hot in Los Angeles. Um, I definitely have not had anything pumpkin spiced yet, but, um, you know, for me, it's got to feel like fall to act on it, you know? Not for Kalen. As soon as it's available, he starts drinking all that holiday stuff. How are you? Welcome to Everything's Relative Podcast. My name is Eve Sturgis. I do most of the talking around here because I am the host. I had what's called a non-paternal event a few years ago. That's when a person learns that at least one parent, at least one parent, isn't actually biologically related to them. I thought the best thing to do was a podcast about it. So here we are, more than 100 episodes later. So much has changed over the time it's taken to make more than 100 episodes. Do you guys remember how I was pregnant that first season and it was hard to breathe and a person complained about it in the reviews? Well, that's something that's different. I am no longer pregnant, for example. Hey, a quick word about one thing before I get back to reminiscing about bad reviews. Have you heard of Magic Mind yet? It's these little shots of like juice. It's a juice made with all sorts of things that are good for you. It's got a little matcha, a little ashwagandha, a little lion's made mushrooms. You just get one tiny two ounce bottle and you take one each morning. Helps with stress, focus, productivity. I have been taking it regularly since my last episode. And do I sound calm, organized, and productive or what? If you want to try Magic Mind, use my discount code. Go to magicmind.com forward slash Eve. Use the discount code RELATIVE20. That's RELATIVE20. You know who else uses Magic Mind? Kim Kardashian. It's just one of the many similarities that she and I share. How else could we handle being who we are? Magic Mind. Be like me. Be like me and Kim. Try Magic Mind for focus, energy, productivity, calm. Magicmind.com forward slash Eve. Discount code RELATIVE20. RELATIVE20. I also felt very calm when I talked with today's guest, therapist Abby Hasbury, a lovely soul living as a therapist to the adoption community in Baltimore, Maryland. I've said it before, but I'll say it again for the people in the back. We are learning so much from adoptees about the identity journey. We all have so much more in common than we realize. It's a lot like me and Kim Kardashian. Anyway, give it a listen, me and Abby, and I'll meet you on the other side. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, where are you located? 
So I'm in Baltimore right now. Baltimore. That's so funny because yes. if you had, I was like, sure you were in Seattle and I don't <laughs> know why. No. <laughs> like I just, sometimes I just like make up narratives in my head. It's but fair. then I was realizing as you were, uh, as we were like logging on, I was like, wait a minute, we had that whole time change thing. Like she's at this spot, it's later for me. It must yeah. not be Seattle. Where no. could it be? <laughs> Baltimore. Very different. Okay. Okay, cool. Very different. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks for coming on with me. Thank you. Um, so you, so you, you are coming here as a transracial adoptee. Yes. And a therapist. And how do those two things? And a birth mom as well. And a birth mom. Did yeah. you know that? I mean, maybe I did know that. But... Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you come with all sorts of experience. Yes. Um, and how do those things coalesce for you? So, yeah, it was not planned at all. The therapist part of it in any world that I'd ever imagined for myself. Um, I was a teacher and then a principal and started schools. And then when I kind of walked away from being a principal and saying, I never want to work again full time ever in my life. What do I want to do with my life? Um, I started coaching people who were opening either schools or educational adjacent organizations. So all virtual work with people all across the country. And so I had a lot of time on my hands and started thinking about like what identities I wanted to explore. Because um, when I got my PhD, I did a lot on black racial identity development. And so identity development is just like my thing, like my love. And so I'm like, let me explore this adoptee really the identity that I have that I kind of ignored. <laughs> That's way. what I was going to ask um, you when you say yeah. you wanted, you were ready to explore identity. I didn't know if you meant yeah. personally you were going to explore identity yes. or if like you were ready to write my another own. paper about identity. Yeah, okay. no. You know, for yourself. Identity. Okay. Oh, yes. interesting. Okay. So I started joining like Facebook groups and support groups and leading other um, adoptees and specifically really a lot of black female transracial adoptees who are adult women who started to hear my story and started coming to me privately and saying like, how did you become so comfortable with your black identity? Like, what, how is it you feel so strong in that space? I'm always uncomfortable around a group of black women. Like, how are you so comfortable? And so I did a couple of coaching sessions with a couple different black um, female trans transracial adoptees and pretty quickly realized that coaching is just not what they needed, that therapy, there was just so much trauma. So they needed therapy. And so we did the whole, like, let's look in your city and find a adoption informed therapist who also understands transracial adoption, who's also a black woman. Like this, it's just not going to happen. Um, right. You're looking for a, you know, you're looking for a unicorn. So that kind of like just motivated me to go back to school again. Well, I love school, so it doesn't take much to motivate me to go back to school. I'm in school again right now, but I have issues. But, <laughs> but you, did you say you had gotten your, you already had earned a PhD? Yeah. And then you went back, you went back to become a therapist. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I got a master's in counseling and development. You do love school. I do. <laughs> I do. I'm in again. I'm getting a third master's right now, but it's whatever. But um, that kind of fueled me to do this and become a therapist. And so I work with mostly with adoptees. I have one adoptive parent, well, um, mostly adoptees, and then just two, actually only two other clients who aren't in the constellation. Mm -hmm. um, but 90% of my clients are adoptees. And so it's just been what I love. Um, and I'm looking also to work with birth moms too. Wow. Yeah. It sounds like you really found a vocation. Like you really yes. found yourself in a place that makes sense for you and for others, like in the community. Um, are your adoptee clients children or are they adults? 
adults. All right. Yeah, I had a couple who were children, 13 and 12, but um, 18 and over is just kind of my my sweet spot. I love, yeah, <laughs> I love too, yeah. Um, the, especially like the young adults transitioning and learning to do life like that just mm-hmm. adulting thing is just so hard. Um, and must might also be because like in my past as an educator, I love working with toddlers and then I love working with middle schoolers. And now it's like young adults. I think they're like all kind oh. of the same animal. Yeah, like, totally. You know? You're all like transitional, yeah. like what tools, yes. do we, what tools do we need? So that's kind of what I love, but yeah, all, mostly adults now. Mm-hmm. And what are you finding about, um, are all your adoptee clients, um, transracial? No, yeah, no, not all transracial, but, um, I, most of them are transracial. I have, um, one who is inter-country and then one who is, um, same race, but, um, he is Latino and his family is, uh, his family of origin was, uh, Mexican, very Mexican, like in Mexico, Mexican, where his family is in America is Mexican American and very American. Right. And so right. even though he's the same race and even same ethnicity, it's, so there's still a lot of differences. Yeah, a lot of differences. I think I've had one guest that also had a similar um, situation, but it was this very specifically like a Mexican-American versus Me- Mexican-Mexican. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and even that being um, being like challenging in its own own ways about where he landed. Wow. So... So tell me more about your practice or what you're doing or what you're hoping to do with, with your, you have, so you're, um, you have a, like your Instagram account is called Dear Abby. Yes. Right. Yeah. So tell me, so tell me more about that and what else, what you're doing. Yeah. So it stands for diversity, empathy, advocacy, and respect. And those are kind of the things that I think about when I think about counseling. So looking at all of those aspects. And so um, I'm working with, with clients. I do brain spotting therapy as well to work with some of that trauma. Um, but a lot of it too, I'm really trying to focus now on doing some advocacy. So I'm looking at um, like original birth certificates and getting that, the rights to that, access to that. And speaking not only from my adoptee identity, but also my birth mother identity, because I think that in that fight, um, that's the voice that people are saying, well, it's not fair to birth mothers. So that I can say, you know, this as a birth mom, like this absolutely is fair. And this is what we need to do. It's a human right to know who you are, where you came from. Um, so that is, yeah, I'm working along all of those aspects. And also I have written a memoir. And so I'm working on the publishing of that too. And so really just trying to get the narrative out there um, of, of just adopting narrative, the birth mom narrative, just adoption in general and the trauma of it all, um, while helping people work through their own narratives and just kind of finding the hero in their stories. Mm-hmm. I love that. I really love that. Can you tell me a little bit about your own adoption story? Sure. So I was adopted in 1971, um, transracially. My parents um, were kind of hippies (laughs) in a way, thinking they could change the world. Um, They had three biological kids already and found out they couldn't have any more. And so they wanted to adopt. And so originally they wanted to adopt a kiddo from Vietnam. They were looking for, you know, a kid who had been orphaned, quote unquote orphaned, in the Vietnam War. Right, because um, this is 1971, you said? Yes. Right, yeah. so this is like prime. Yes. Prime, ha- save, save the baby, it. save the baby yes. from Vietnam, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had friends who had done it, and then they realized quickly that they were educators and they couldn't afford it. I joked that they probably couldn't afford to take everyone to a Vietnamese restaurant, much less adopt a kid, but for some reason, that's what they thought they were going to do, um, but quickly could found out that they couldn't. They also realized that they couldn't afford it or and didn't want to wait the time to get a white baby. So 
I'm third choice. And so here I am adopted into the family. Mm -hmm. And so they had plans to go back and adopt another child. We're all about two and a half, three years apart. And so they wanted to go back two years later and adopt a child. But it was after that night, the National Black Social Workers put out the position statement against translational adoption. So they weren't able, they were banned from or blocked, I guess, from adopting another black kiddos. Is that a state by state thing? Um, probably. I'm like, because I feel like I that's transracial adoption is definitely happening. So it still happens. But 1972, yeah. they put out that paper just completely mm-hmm. saying that it was, you know, ethically not right, mental health reasons. It wasn't right. It was just not the thing to do. And so uh, agencies were shying against doing it for a few years. Mm-hmm. And so they went, they were in 1973 trying to do it. And they said, no, absolutely right. not. So I have ended up being the only kiddo in the family. Um, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. And what, um, where was this? What area of the country? In Baltimore. So okay. we lived here for a while, but then, well, I guess I don't remember moving to Wisconsin, but I, I guess it was an infant. We moved to Wisconsin and then Pennsylvania, and then we moved to Egypt for three years, first to third grade. I was there and then Miami for middle school and then back to Maryland for high school. Oh, wow. So I've been mm-hmm. kind of all over the place. Um, but yeah, it was an interesting kind of growing up in that my mom was an English teacher at private school. So we all went to the schools where she taught for free. And so my whole family was there. And so everyone knew that I was adopted. I never had to talk about it. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a, an identity that I took on. So in Egypt, it was like I was an expat. You know, I was an American. That was kind of that identity. In Miami, I was like, you know, just the educator's child. And I went to a very affluent school. And so I was different from people in that way. Um, but it wasn't until high school when I decided to not go to the school where she was teaching. And then I started to think about the fact that my, you know, people look at our family really strangely. And I had never known that until high school. Huh. Wow. That's interesting. That's almost like a first. I I mean, you would tell, I guess you, you tell me, but was that, would you say that's maybe when like a layer of fog began to dissipate or, you know, yeah. fog, like through the so sort of like the fog analogy? Just yeah, so definitely that. And in, just in middle school, too, even in Miami, when I started to really want to date and realize that like at my very white private school, like if I wanted to dance at the dance, I was going to have to bring my own date. But that just wasn't going to happen. So that noticing was different in that way definitely happened. Um, and my mom was very vocal about things that I encountered when I had microaggressions as a child. She would point them out and talk to me about like what that looks like and about society. So I think that she kind of allowed me to not to not completely go into the fog, but mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I definitely was in it for, for a while, but there was a layer, at least the racial part, the transracial part of my adoption. I was never completely into that, in that fog. I recognized that I was dif- different and looked at different society was going to see us differently. So. Do you find that that's more common with that, that other transracial adoptees would describe it that way, that when there's a difference in race or ethnicity, that's obvious that, that, that their experience of, of differentness or being othered is, is more pronounced. seems like a really obvious question, but yes, (laughs) yes. But different from mine, because Mm -hmm. my mom talked a lot about it and I don't think that that's normal. And so her talking about it and pointing it out and really having conversations with me and empowering me made it so that the difference was not a me issue but like an other people issue society's issue whereas when I was talking with my transracial adoptees now in therapy 
that it's all been internalized. Like I'm different from everyone else. There's something wrong with me. I haven't been accepted. Whereas I grew up with like, there's something wrong with the world. Like <laughs> the world is yeah. messed up. I'm fine. And this toddler looking at me, it's not me. Right. Oh, wow. That's such a, that's a, I, I just hadn't thought about the like sort of, a, a, not that I, I, mm, I don't want to say that I did not think about it because that's not true, but um, the negative effects of, or more another yet another negative effect <laughs> of the perspective of like we're all colorblind um we're all the same like we'll just sort of um deny deny the differences yeah um had an adverse effect yes and that's yeah but that but you didn't have to experience that so much no not as much no which i think made a lot of the difference in my own identity development for sure Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really neat. Mm-hmm. But on your Instagram, I think I followed a link to you telling a story, like doing a, a moth, like a, like a, a storytelling oh, yes. evening, right? <laughs> and you tell, you talk about the country club. Yeah. Um, do you do that a lot? Do you go around um, t- telling stories or, or, you know, is that part of your um, identity is as a storyteller? Um, so I don't know if it's part of my identity as a storyteller as much as part of my need to normalize um, the experience for me and for other people. Um, I know that I don't have fear or shame or any of those things about my story. And I know a lot of people do. And especially working with my my clients, I know that there's a lot of just kind of shame and especially thinking about birth mothers. Um, and so because I don't feel that, I feel like almost like it's my responsibility to tell the story because shame lives in secrets and so when i tell my story and people can relate it every single time i've told it i'll have people come up and say you know you've said things that i haven't wanted to say to anyone but i've been feeling and so being able to do that feels like a gift to me and from me as well um so i don't i don't know that i identify as as a storyteller and it was again never part of the plan but i just feel like it's almost like an obligation Mm -hmm. yeah part of the vocation or another element of vocational like a calling yep can you tell a little bit of your birth mother story as a birth mother yeah when I was 16 I got pregnant and I didn't tell anyone I hid it um like all you know smart things to do is hide Mm -hmm. these really important things in your life um at five months my mom had me go to the doctor because she thought I had mono because I was sleeping all the time and not wanting to go to track practice and she thought I was just sick and so I went to Mm -hmm. the doctor who of course right away was like oh you're pregnant (laughs) Um, you <laughs> no, tell your, your mom. poor mom. Oh, God. <laughs> like, yeah. Yes. So I like, mean, I'm just thinking about your mom. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> and I, thought... I still didn't. I still didn't. So at seven wow. months, the doctor finally called my mom and broke HIPAA and was like, hey, she's pregnant and she's going to have a child in two months and you guys should probably deal with this. So um, I had less than eight weeks to kind of talk through and think through this. And I, I, all the time that I feel like I was coerced and it was I call it birth mother grooming because they told me they would support whatever I did but then they never showed me a path where I could work this temporary situation out to be a permanent thing like a permanent success story Abby that's like the most I just got goosebumps from head to toe because I feel like you just articulate described you just described something that I hadn't put words to or that hadn't, there's something about 
the, this false narrative of we'll support whatever you do. But by the way, here's this one golden way and there's no other way. And it's beautiful. And here um, are these golden people who will who have right. money and careers and successfully raising other children. And, and here you are. You know, what do you have to offer? You don't have a yeah. job. You don't even have a high school diploma. You want to go to college. You want to go to track camp in a couple months, which I did. I was already signed up to go. And they actually sent me a couple of weeks after I gave birth. They still yeah, sent well. me. So, so yes. Well, track camp is important. <laughs> Super. If they want you to not think about it. They have to not think yes. about it, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they we they, them with the social worker kind of convinced me that I wasn't able to do this thing instead of but saying that it was my decision and it was my choice, um, but never showing me support, never taking me to a thrift store and saying, "Oh, we can afford this crib." And here's where we set it up in your room, like that. None of that ever happened. It was just. If you want to do this, we'll support you. But we know you want to go to check in. And here are all these wonderful families waiting. And they have all these things that you don't. Um, and so, yeah, I chose to place my son or chose, quote unquote, to place mm -hmm. my son um, for adoption. Wow. That, that, that puts such a different layer into the story of you as an adult like studying, studying identity and becoming a therapist um, and looking at your own adoption. Yeah. Whoa. And, and, and <laughs> the people around me too, just mm -hmm. the people around me and, and how I know that I was failed. But at the same time, being able to just live with, I feel like they just were flawed and they had, they did the best they could with the situation. They were scared too. You know, they didn't know what to do. They had no time to figure this out as well because I didn't tell them I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's been a, a journey <laughs> to say the least Yeah, in, in healing. Yeah. In a really stupid way, I had not, even though you, even though you had said to me, I think we've said it three times before you told the story that you were a birth mother, you telling that story is so much bigger than the words birth mother. Like imagining, because you had already talked about high school, like you'd already mentioned like, oh, when I went to the dances in high school or like when I lived in Miami, so I already had, I didn't even realize it, but I already had an image of your yeah. like developmental experience. And now it's been like rewritten yes. with, with a more authentic chapter in there. That's really powerful. <laughs> if I may, if I may say so, I'm very moved. Yeah, it was it was very hard. It was really hard. And they didn't give me therapy. They sent me mm -hmm. to track camp and they told them that I had a medical procedure and so I couldn't actually run. And so like and then I went to school my senior year and graduated and went to college and acted like none of this ever happened. Although um, I, I was 16 and 17 when I gave birth and tiny. And so I had stretch marks. So every time I got went, you know, got a dress or had a bathing suit on or whatever happened. I then had to tell people within my life, like, this is why. And so that's another thing that I think I have very different from a lot of birth mothers, especially teen birth mothers, is that I told people around me in college and from then on, because I, I kind of had to, I had the scars of it. And so I didn't ever have that shame of keeping the secret because I, I just didn't keep the secret. I told people. I'm imagining, I'm imagining your young college age peers looking at you as you- Yes. <laughs> sort of nonchalantly explain what's happening or what has, you know, a part of your history, Yeah, man, talk about, like I had two heads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or like, just talk about, I mean, I know that it's sort of, 
common or like within the especially like social media self-help zeitgeist to be like to say um you know you never know what someone else is going through but that just feels um like a really concrete example of how much we don't know about other people yeah. our college yes. roommates our college roommates yeah you may never say anything right wow hmm. ah. I'm just gonna yes. trip. I'm just gonna trip out about that for a minute. Um, do you talk about it with your parents now? So my mom recently passed in February, and she had dementia for uh, almost a decade. So um, after reunion with my biological family, and then even with my son, um, we talk about it a little bit. But I think that that trust was broken at that point, the way that they didn't handle it correctly, the way that they, you know, just kind of sent me off to go to track camp and, and just kind of rush things under the rug. Um, they never really knew me. I think my mom would have told you that I was the closest to her because I called her all the time and she talked, but she never really knew me. And so I never, I, I didn't talk to her about how I felt about it because she wouldn't have understood. And even if she tried to understand the way I felt about it would have caused her so much guilt and shame and pain that I don't think she would have heard me. So you just mentioned reunion with your bio mother. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? And, or also relationship with your son, who I'm assuming yes. is the son you relinquished. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You are just like a calm. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You look calm. You look, you look, <laughs> I don't know. It's that adoption thing. Yeah, it's, like it's that adoption crazy, thing. Like you come in, right? It? Like you come in just <laughs> smiling, and you just got like one bomb to drop after the next. Yeah. I found my family in 2017. I started looking for them in 1990. Um, 1993. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and my biological dad unfortunately passed away in 1996, um, and he never even knew that I had been conceived. Um, and I found my biological family in 2017 through DNA. I had tried going through Lutheran Social Services where I had adopted and they have all the records and we're trying to contact people and oh, this may be a nickname, it might not even be, like all of the things. Um, and finally in 2017, DNA kind of just threw open everything. And so I found both sides of my family. Um, my dad had had seven kids. He had been married previously before I was born. So I'm still the youngest, even though <laughs> to three different families, I'm still the youngest. They have been completely open and, and welcoming and amazing on my dad's side. And apparently he was kind of a rolling stone anyway, so they weren't shocked. It was like, okay, yeah. you know, we knew this was coming somewhere and it may come again later. But mm -hmm, <laughs> they mm -hmm. were completely shocked. In, um, Bal in Baltimore or in yes. the Maryland area? Okay. Yes, in Baltimore. And so my on my biological mom's side, she had not told anyone that she had been pregnant. And so including my brother, who was about two and a half years older than me. And so I found him. Um, and when he questioned her about it, she was very angry and told me she wanted nothing to do with me because I kind of outed her secret. And so I had a relationship with him for a few years. Um, but after just kind of thinking about my own mental health and the fact that he wasn't telling his kids, who are my nieces and nephews, and actually my niece is exact same age as my youngest daughter, and we're here in the same city, um, I decided that I did not, you know, it didn't feel good to me to, to be in the situation. So I mm -hmm. shut that off a little bit. Um, but yes, I, I have met all of them and you know, have been in contact for a while. Wow. That must have been um, interesting for the for your brother to learn of a sister so close in age. 
Yes. That's a and whole younger. different, yeah. Like yeah. that's a whole different um, kind of surprise. Like we, yes. you know, like we talk a lot, we talk a lot about surprise siblings showing up, but there's usually some sort of um, like event or distance or something that makes not knowing about it, like makes more sense. But two yes. and a half years is really close. If he was around, <laughs> like that's, yeah. yeah, I mean, and I understand a two and a half year old not not knowing. Would never know, yeah. right? And like you were, you know, you could do it from your whole family in high school, you know. Like I see how it happens, <laughs> but yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. In his defense, he did take it really well and was open, and I just like maybe mm-hmm. take this DNA test, and he did, and so like he just kind of accepted that, mm-hmm. but um, has chosen to just kind of stick by his mom's wishes, which kind of leaves me still like out so and that doesn't feel good I I imagine that's hurtful yes for sure Mm -hmm. but again people are people and he has to do what he needs to do and she clearly hasn't done her work and that's not like my responsibility so right right definitely not as a fellow therapist I would like to validate (laughs) I would like to validate that you know (laughs) what is your work and what is not your work (laughs) great and how did you connect with your son? So I connected with him um, by on Facebook. So I, I always knew that I wanted to see him again. Like that was never a question of if, if it was just a question of when. And when he turned 18, I thought about it. But I thought about where I was at 18 and going to college and all of that. And I was like, like absolutely not. So I waited um, five years um, after his 18th birthday to have him get through college and try to get like, start a career, that kind of stuff. Um, and so I remembered the name of the woman who owned the agency when I placed him and I did went through the Facebook stuff and found her. Um, I messaged her and said, do you remember me? And she, of course, remembered me, especially because my parents, um, another wonderful failure, <laughs> my, oh. my mom's parenting, they went away two weeks before my due date. And so, of course, I went into labor early while they were on a vacation. And so she actually came to the hospital. Um, and so I was the only birth mom Sorry, she ever worked on, with. Where she, yeah. I just want to go back there. Your parents <laughs> went on vacation two weeks yeah. before your due date. Well, look, <laughs> oh, no, I can't. I can't even make a joke about In their defense, that. my mom's birthday was June 13th and I had a June 10th. So she wanted mm-hmm. to you know, go on vacation. So. Yeah, she, look, when you want to go, you want to go. <laughs> you gotta go. She needed yeah. to relax. It's hard being educators. <laughs> yes. um, no, what I'm just thinking about also just like how how many different pieces of the story are about denial. Yeah. I'm just like, if we don't make a big deal about this, this is not a big it's deal. If we make this a forgettable, yeah. if we make this a forgettable <laughs> blip on the radar, it will yes. be a forgettable blip. Why would yeah. we stay home for a big deal that is not a big deal? <laughs> it's not a big right? deal. Right? Like, little, a plan. like yeah. It's just yeah. Like, wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can see the yeah. retrospect on that being really hard to ask your mother to go through. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, mm-hmm. it just, it wouldn't. I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not at all. So I, I messaged her and said, you remember me? And she said, yes, of course I do. And I said, you know, I love my son. Can you help me? And she's like, ethically and legally, I can't do that. It's like, okay. And so she sent me a Facebook friend request right after that. So I accepted it. And immediately after I accepted it, she posted a picture of this young black man. And it said, my godson the stud and had his name. And so I Googled his name and he was an athlete in D1 school. And so his whole profile was there and it had his birth date and his city. And 
her date was the date I gave birth and the city was where I gave birth. And so I messaged her and said, is he my son? And she's like, well, since you figured it out, I can say yes. Wow. I'm like so nervous for everybody, even though I knew where the story <laughs> was going. But like, I knew, like, I'm like, yeah. And then what? Like, and, yeah. then, and then she get in trouble. Like what? Oh, good. Okay, great. Yeah. She found a loophole. Good for her. Yes. Yeah. So I messaged him. Um, at first I messaged his mother actually to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to do this. They actually had known my name from the beginning because a year after, um, I had placed him, there was some paperwork that hadn't been signed. And so I had to sign it and they signed it. And so they saw my name on the paperwork. And so they had known who I was the entire time. Um, I ran track in college, I mean, in high school. And so they saw where I was running, they saw my records in the newspaper because it was the same town. Right. And, and so, they were like, she must have gone yeah. to track. She must have gone to track camp. This champion is a track. She's a she's a track camp. It's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they wow. followed me um into college until I transferred to a different college. And so oh. then they lost then they lost track of me. But they had like they knew my name and they had told him my name. And so when I did contact him, it wasn't like a complete shock for him. Wow. Because um, he already knew who I was. And so um, were they a black family? No, which which was not a big deal when I realized it then. But a couple of years ago, I was working with one of my clients, my educational coaching clients, and we did a kind of an icebreaker. And he said, who was your um, TV family growing up? Like that family that when you're sucked, you were like, I'm part of this family, not part of that one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it was the Cosby show. And then I had this like triggered memory of looking through the books as a child, as a pregnant teenager, looking through the books of families. And I had chosen a family that was interracial. The mother was a lawyer and the father was a doctor. And they reminded me of the Cosby show in that way. Um, and they had adopted a black son already. And so I was like, this is my family. And so to, I say two years ago, I realized, holy crap, she didn't give him to the family I chose. His family was a white couple and they had had two, they adopted two um, girls in their country. And he was, he was raised the only black kid in the family. And that's the opposite of what I had asked for. She had given him to her friend. Yeah, I realized that like two years ago. So I'm with you <laughs> on the face. I'm with you. And I haven't shared this with him yet. So um, because he and I are kind of cordially talking right now, not necessarily we aren't, we aren't very close right now. And so like, yeah, I realized that after. That might be the most heartbreaking of all the heartbreaks you have shared today. <laughs> that might be. Yeah, that was, that's been really hard. And the caseworker passed away maybe five or six years ago. So I had, I had never even got to be like, what, what were you thinking? Cause she and I got close afterwards when I got my PhD, she threw me a party in Vegas cause I went to UNLV. Like, so we had gotten close. And so to think about that a few years later after she passed away, I was just like, wow. <laughs> Wow is one word for it. Um, yeah. It's amazing to think of you as, as one person having this experience and all of the different pieces that are, that are worthy of saying, wow. Right. Like I'm saying, <laughs> um, you know, but, and not just not yet. There are some surprising things, but also just levels of where you see that there's, like injustice or um, 
poorly advised ethics or no ethics or, you know, like there's all these things that are not fair that you can see, like, of course we want to fix them. And you're just one of millions of adoptees. Yes. And you're young in within the population of adoptees, as far as, you know, people, pe- people screaming about the, 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 the corruption and the, all the things that need to change about the system. Yeah, especially so, on like the tail end of the baby scoop era. Yeah, you're on the uh, tail end. I was going to say, there, yeah. so many are um, are baby scoop World War II, post World War II era, and you're you're really at the tail end of that. Yeah. Um, so just imagine, it's hard. It makes it very hard. It makes this conversation very heavy. Yes, for me, if you want to know my feelings. <laughs> she did it. She did I'm it. A therapist, of like, course yeah, I do. Yeah. But I mean, you know, like we're talking the conversation has a kind of like light vibe to it. And you're you're clearly very comfortable telling the story. Um but just just think. Just think. If this is what happened to you in a lot of things in your life went best case scenario. Yeah. As far as who you are today. I tell my husband all the time, you're lucky. I'm like totally sane, which probably yeah, not at totally. all. <laughs> <laughs> He's you're like, so yeah, you're lucky. Not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm sorry. I always say wow. Um, <laughs> but that's what I say when I'm speechless and I'm just processing things. I just, you know, um, yeah, there's so much to think about there. Is there anything about your story that I didn't ask about or, or, you know, segue into for you that you want to talk about? Um, I, parenting after having um, placed a child has been interesting, um, but great, but mm-hmm. interesting. My son, my oldest son is 28. And when he was younger, he always wanted an older brother. And so parenting after placing his older brother was like, it was just like, whew. So when we found my son in 2010 and I could finally say like, I was, I had no shame and didn't want to tell them, but I didn't want to tell them when I had no answers. And so being able to tell them in 2010, like, this is the thing that happened to me. This is what I went through. And you have this brother, um, was just kind of like, um, as it turned out, they played the same sport, like both of them on a very high level. They are like so much the same, like energy of a person, just so much alike. Um, that he felt like he got a brother for a while. And so mm-hmm. My son that I placed kind of withdrew from us. Um, mm. But at the same time, they've had, so he has been completely just like, I, my, my son, my 20 year old is very laid back. So he is just kind of like, this is the thing that happened. And, you know, brother has to deal with it how he needs to deal with it. And it's fine. I'll give him space. Whereas my youngest, who is 16 now, almost 17 next week, um, she has known him since she was five. And so she doesn't remember life without him. So she feels rejected. Mm-hmm. He lived with us for a little while for about a year and a half and then lived close to us for a year after that, just kind of around the corner. And so she started a life with him and then he withdrew. Mm-hmm. And so she has like really hard, you know, time thinking about that. And so yeah, thinking about the reunion, it's not just the mom and the child or, you know, whatever, it's all of them. And that's the same way I kind of feel about my biological brother keeping his kids from my kids too, is that same, you know, I don't even want them to have to think about the fact that they have these cousins out there that they're not allowed to see. Um, it's it's hard. It's like a whole, mm-hmm. it just trickles down. I yeah, call I was it saying the, like that the ripple, gift that the keeps ripple, on giving. Yeah, the ripple effect <laughs> or the, 
you know, whatever, I guess. Yes. Trickling down and rippling any, any analogy that, that you just are not isolated. Like these are not isolated incidents or isolated humans or people are not, what's it called? Collateral damage. You know, it's just this, there's a lot of people and hearts and minds and souls involved with each existence, with each birth. Yes. Hmm. Very much so. Yeah. So if people want to follow you on social media. Yes. It's Dear Abby. Yes. It's Dear, but is it, and is it, is there, is there, is it D period E A R? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's D period so it's E period, E period, A period, a period R, period, R period, period. And then period. underscore Abby. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> a lot easier. I think I just, to the listeners, it's a lot easier than we just made it sound, <laughs> but I will also make sure then include that in the show notes. Um, is that the best way to sort of track, you know, keep a, keep the sounds terrible. I don't know. I was going to say keep tabs on you. And that's not what I mean. I mean, like, yes, because uh, tree is in my bio. And so okay. email websites, all of that is yeah. in the bio on Instagram. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. Um, so I'll make sure that's all available to, to, to listeners and, um, Thank you. yeah. And, and I'm so, I feel so. I feel so lucky to have you. Um, so, you know, like I'm, I'm in, uh, coming, coming to this conversation as an NPE first. Um, I'm learning so much about, about family dynamics, you know, of course, and family secrets and, and shame, but we're learning so much from adoptees. Right. Like adoptees have been sort of the DNA piece is just yeah. Right. Like you've been walking, you've been walking this identity journey for so much longer than our community. And so I just feel so lucky to have people like you willing to talk and willing to come in and say, Hey, let's talk about all these things. And um, of course I had no idea when I started the podcast that I would be learning about so much about adoption. Yeah. Um, but it's really opened my eyes so much to this whole world. Um, it's fascinating and it really needs change. It's really, it's really worth t- time and effort to learn about it. Um, yeah, it's all about people having the right to their own information and mm-hmm. PE adoption, whatever it is. It's just like, we have a right to know there's yeah. just, and it's just going to get harder and harder, um, to keep right. secrets with, Facebook and you know DNA discoveries and all of that I was thinking about like had my mom and dad been a couple in the land of Facebook she would have been posting about him and that would have been out there for forever so if yeah. I looked back you know I could have yeah. found you know pictures of them and right that's what it's going to be like it's just we have a right to know and, and it's just not a thing you can keep a secret anymore and never should have been right wow okay so everybody follow Abby also watch her tell the story (laughs) (laughs) yeah and my memoir should be coming out soon great oh great yeah oh my gosh please keep in touch um with me about that um so i I, yeah i'm looking forward to that to reading that so yeah talking to you some more well i hope we can connect again absolutely i'd love that yeah just Um, if i sounded stupid just take it out i'll take it out i promise (laughs) Believe me, I, I make sure I'm the stupidest one every time. <laughs> 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thank you again to Abby for giving me some part of her day to tell her stories. Her story didn't leave me speechless. Those aren't the words I want to use, but it was another time that someone's story is so big with so many things to think about that I find myself sort of overwhelmed with like the existential concepts to mull over. And the story itself doesn't really take that long to tell. It's like this huge story, these huge pieces, but a shorter episode. It's like there should be a way to have like really long pauses (laughs) in a podcast. I mean, I guess I could just do that. But I could just encourage everyone to take the time to really think about parts of a person's story. I talked with Abby days ago. I mean, the original conversation was days ago. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around being a young woman, being adopted, being pregnant in high school and and not telling anyone, parents sending them to track camp, being a birth mother, coming through to the other side and wanting to be a therapist to to this particular population community. There's just so much in there. It was, it was really wonderful. So thank you so much, Abby, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the work you do as a therapist. Make sure that you are following her on Instagram, everyone. It's Dear Abby, but you spell dear like it's an acronym. So it's like D period, E period, A period, R period, underscore Abby. And I'll have that in the show notes of the podcast um, if you need to find it. And hey, you know what I'm going to say next? If you're following Abby, follow me at Everything's Relative Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're sharing it with the people you know. You know what I haven't done in a few weeks? A review of the week. Let's do one, shall we? One person said she likes to listen to it every week. Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Um, She said she likes to listen for them every week. Um, And I haven't done them in a little bit. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm back. I'm back doing review of the week. This person gave me five stars and the review reads, super great, exclamation point. That's it. That's the whole review. And you know what Shakespeare said, the brevity is the soul of wit. Question, are there any listeners out there who went to high school with me and had Miss Insul as an English teacher? She used to always say that. Brevity is the soul of wit. I mean, you didn't have to go to high school with me to have had Miss Insole as an English teacher. Where are you? Where's Miss Insole? Does anybody know where she is these days? Anyway, thank you, Miss Insole. And thank you, listener, for writing that review and showing us and everyone that you really can make it very effortless. I can't imagine that took more than 10 seconds. Try it, folks. It might feel good. It will feel very good to me to be back next week with you. I've got three more episodes for the season. I hope you're hanging around. I mean, you've come this far. Where where on earth would you go now? Hang in there. And don't forget to pick up the dry cleaning. 
I'm Eve Sturgis. This is Everything's Relative. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. 